This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices, a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Keith Smith is chair of the American Indian and Tribal Law Division, Civil Litigation Division, and Wills and Estates Planning Division at Setter Roach Smith and Schellenberger. Raised to speaking exclusively Navajo until age five, Keith's determination and innovative planning to overcome early school ridicule and labeling were signs of things to come in his remarkable life. Keith now represents Native clients and Navajo employers within his specialty of federal Indian law. From reading shampoo labels so he could pronounce English syllables in second grade, to making checklists for his path to law school, Keith's story is a voice of unassuming inspiration. As you'll hear in this engaging conversation with our own Mallory Revel and Linda Moss, Keith's three rules for success continue to serve him well. Hello, and welcome to Our Voices. I'm Linda Moss. I'm a family law attorney with Setterosh Smith & Schellenberger. I'm here with my co-host, Mallory Revel, who's a criminal attorney with Foster Graham, Milstein & Kalisher. And today, we are here interviewing Mr. Keith Smith. Keith, can you introduce yourself, please? Good afternoon, Mallory. Good afternoon, Linda. J.A. Keith Smith, and this year, so good afternoon. I introduce myself traditionally. Uh, my name is Keith Smith. Uh, I am a partner at Setter Roach, Smith and & Schellenberger, and, uh, and happy to be here today. Awesome. Thank you so much, Keith. We're really happy to have you. Um, so as you may know, uh, our podcast is all about you. So what we want to ask you today is, who were you, who are you, and who are you going to be? Tell us everything about your life. <laughs> so let's start with who were you? Tell us about your childhood. Um, I grew up in a small rural community in Colorado. I actually um, moved off the reservation when I was a young age. And one of the things that uh, most people don't know about me is that um, I didn't learn how to speak English until I was about five or six years old. So mm-hmm. moving from the reservation onto in a public school arena in Colorado was rather difficult. So... Mm-hmm. Um, it took me a while to uh, to master the intricacies of English. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes when I go back home and I speak to individuals, especially by telephone, uh, they realize they didn't know I was Navajo until I, and I, they, oh, you're Navajo? And so I would speak to them in Navajo, like, oh, okay, now, you know, so, and I notice a lot of the barriers come down once I do that, because a lot of my clients, the majority of my clients are tribal members. Mm-hmm. So, um so that that it took a while to 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 I don't know I've dropped that accent I suppose mm-hmm. but I'm told that when I go back home I fall back into it pretty easily yeah so and this might be kind of a complicated question but you spoke Navajo and learned English at around five or six are you able to explain any of the um, technical or grammatical differences between Navajo and English um in my work, I guess in conversation, it's it's a lot easier. And I'll be honest with you, that opportunity doesn't come up very often. Living in Denver, you do come across 
some folks who, who recognize as being native or Navajo. And mm-hmm. um, I, I'll come across somewhere in public and I think, wow, that, that person looks Navajo. So I'll get within shot, earshot, and I'll say, like that, you know what I mean? Like, where are you from? Mm. And if you understand it, they'll turn and react to you. And, you know, that's how the conversations begin. Mm. So conversation, um, it's a lot easier. From a technical aspect and practice, much more difficult. I mean, there's no, there's no such terms as um, technical terms like you'll be cross-examined this way or explaining jurisprudence or explaining hearsay. You know what I mean? It's, it's a very long, um, strung out conversation that's had. And, and that, those, those um, opportunities don't come up very often. I think the majority of the folks that uh, practice law clients who do have clients who only speak English. Um, and it's difficult because when you do have a hearing, those hearings have to be recorded. And so having to record those, and if the, if the hearing is uh, in Navajo, um, the translator or the people who transcribe the, the hearings can't do it. So we often have it done in English and in Navajo. So You I'll... mentioned a lot of your clients speak Navajo, and mm-hmm. Linda obviously knows this, but can you explain what your practice is? My practice. Um, I started off um, as a family law attorney here in Colorado. And that transitioned into more of the area that I studied at Arizona State University, the College of Law there. And they focused on federal Indian law. So uh, my firm did represent the Oglala Sioux tribe for a number of years. We also represented the Ponca tribe in Nebraska. I was in-house counsel for Diné College, which is the major or one of the major colleges on the Navajo Nation. And um, I currently, they are a client. Um, I sit as a hearing officer um, which is like an ALJ, Administrative mm-hmm. Law Judge, and hear disputes regarding uh, um, the Office of Ethics and Rules will bring complaints against individuals who are employed by the tribe and may have violated the ethical rules of, mm-hmm. the, of the government, of the tribe. And so I hear those matters. Oh, um, interesting. And I also serve as an employment law attorney for the Navajo Nation Gaming Enterprise. So they are my largest clients. Um, and so it does come into play at sometimes, um, but not as often as you think. Uh, I think the majority of folks there do understand and speak Navajo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and obviously, um, <clears throat> we do have non-Navajo, non-speaking Navajo um, practitioners as well. So. so to dial back a little bit to who you were, as a kid, when you were learning English, what were the barriers to kind of bridging that gap between Navajo and English? I think um, one of the major barriers that I that I faced was just the simple aspect of support. Mm. Um, I mean, my, my parents were supportive. My older sister was supportive. I had friends. Um, but the community as a whole was, was difficult. I grew up in a, in a border town. So uh, racism was prevalent. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, it's a matter of perspective when you grew up there. I think, uh, depending on who you are, I didn't see it, or it was very covert. But for me, it was overt. Um, I remember in second grade, uh, being in class, and you had these readers that you had to read aloud in class. And it was a, it was a way to practice um, enunciating, recognizing the words. But I had great difficulty doing it. And I, I couldn't um, read it as smoothly as I, as I had hoped. 
Mm-hmm. And so um, I remember one day going home uh, after a day, just felt humiliated. It was my day, and the kids teased me about it. Mm. Um, and so I went home. You know, as a, as an eight year old, you just don't quite understand what's happening. And my dad, my father came in, was talking to me. He asked me what was wrong. I told him, "Well, this is what happened at school." And I remember it was it was it was one of many uh, pieces of advice he would give me. So he was a very pragmatic person. <laughs> so he would say, "Well, you have two options. You can sit here and continue to cry about it, or you can do something about it." And he kind of sort of left it at that. Like, well, what do I do? I don't know <laughs> yeah. what to do. Suggestions, so, please? <laughs> yeah, maybe, you know, some bullet points to uh-huh. help me out. But I, then I realized, I thought about it more, and I remember um, soon after that, I was taking a bath, and I think in, in most homes in America, you have shampoo bottles and the like sitting around the bathtub. So I picked one up, and I started to read it. I turned it around, I noticed that you had a laundry list of ingredients Probably half of them not good for you, but <laughs> but had many syllables, mm-hmm. and I started reading them aloud and enunciating each syllable, and I realized if I do that often enough, then it became easier. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing my father told me was to read, read everything. Mm-hmm. So I started to do that. Everything I could get my hands on. He used to have his collection, old collection of Louis L'Amour books which is this, this writer that wrote Westerns, okay. in, insanely boring. <laughs> but I was able to get something and, and read and increase, increase my vocabulary. And did you read aloud a lot? Oh, yes, all yeah. the time. So you did something about it. Yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. And that was sort of the, um, one of the three tenets uh, or three um, things I try to teach my, my kids. Mm-hmm. We have three basic rules, and I always try to remind them of it. And I say, you follow these three basic rules, I think will help you tremendously, not only in your professional life, but in your, in mm-hmm. your personal life as well. Well, now I've got to hear the other rules. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we can sum them up as we go along. But, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, but it, was a rule, it was one rule, and they, they'll go out of order. But he always said to me, uh, my father always said, do your best. Hmm. Do your genuine best. If you know you can do better, then do it. And I'll give you an example. Um, the first real job I ever got was working at a McDonald's. And thankfully, the only restaurant job I ever had. Um, <laughs> and um, I worked as a cook. And uh, my younger sister referred to it as slinging grease. Mm-hmm. And, but, yeah. but it was always one of those things where he always reminded me, like, don't, when you're at a job, don't just stand around. Don't wait for it to be told to do something. There's, there's work that has to be done, so do it. So when it was the times were um, slow, I would clean up in the back. I would do this and uh, clean up my area. I would ask if you need help, there's trash, things of that nature, right? And soon after that, I'd only been working there a month when the owner had come to me and said, you know, you're, you're a really good worker. Um, I want to give you a raise. Mm-hmm. And so part of what he told me was that not only do your best, do your genuine best, but if you do that, it won't go unrecognized, mm-hmm. yeah. and the rest will take care of itself. Yeah. And I found that to be pretty true in a lot of my professional work. Mm-hmm. Like, you just really do your best. Out of curiosity, did your parents and your siblings speak English? Um, my parents, yeah, they were bilingual. Uh, my sisters are as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in the house, it was sort of mixed. Um, so mm-hmm. you know you're in trouble when mom speaks to you in Avalon. Ah. <laughs> kind of that thing. 
Um, but it was, yeah, it was mixed. And yeah. so... Um, I'm curious if there was any joint learning process or if you all kind of like had to learn individually in your own time. I think it was the latter. Everybody in their own time in a different way. The, the way I learned um, was certainly different than the way my sisters learned. Mm. I was more... Um, Show me the road. Show me the roadmap. Show me the steps, mm-hmm. and I'll follow it, and I can do it. Yeah. Um, if I needed help, and that was one of the things I had to work on when mm-hmm. I when I was a student was asking for the help. Like I I tried hard to figure out myself because growing up in that environment, um, it was I was really reluctant to reach out. And mm-hmm. I'll give you an example of that when you asked about when I was younger. Um, it, growing up in an environment like that where it, it's so in your face. I remember as a child, um, even adults saying to me, out of earshot or just sort of take you aside because they didn't like you because of the color of your skin or your 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 background. Um, one individual I remember telling me like you're 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 not going to be anything but a drunk Indian. Mm. You know, you're not going to amount to anything. You'll be in jail. Being told those kind of things, so it, it had a it did have an adverse effect on me and how to feel like I could trust people. Oh, how and could it was, not? Yeah. And so I was always left to try to figure it out for my own. And, yeah. and thankfully, I, I, you know, not everybody was like that. But I did run across individuals like that. So, did you ever find yourself believing that? Um, yeah. I mean, I think every individual goes through that, that stage where, yeah, it, it, that is true. I, I don't amount to anything, you know. How do you overcome and, that? Well, I, you know, I think it's a lot of your environment. Like in my in my home environment, um, I was reluctant to say those kind of things because I think it would anger my parents. Just certainly my older sister. She was very like, you know, we we can't stand for that. Mm-hmm. And part of that, what my father would always say is like, you know, you have a voice, you stand up for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think at that point, um, again, began to realize that. I began to realize for myself, I could do things. Um, I can understand things. I can read. I am intelligent. And so... It came to more like switching of the, flipping the switch from believing what people may be saying about me in a negative aspect to, okay, that's what you believe, but I'm going to do everything I can to prove you wrong. Create your own narrative. Correct. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing that. So that was part of the whole process of reading everything. I wanted to increase my vernacular. My senior year high school English teacher always challenged me to learn a new word. Mm. So I found myself uh, reading the dictionary even. Wow. So using uh, words and context that are appropriate, but not as part of regular conversation. Mm-hmm. So always, some people always found it weird. I was going to say, you were that kid who was <laughs> yeah, like, using uh, those words that no one's ever heard of. <laughs> yeah, but then kind of just kind of throwing them in there. Mm-hmm. And, and I, think, I think it was um, my daughter's third grade teacher had asked and asked, um, uh, uh, my wife and I went to uh, her uh, parent-teacher conference. Teacher asked, well, how, how do you speak to her? How did you speak to her when she was a child? I was like, well, we never baby talked. We just spoke, you know, she's a, like a little person. Mm-hmm. So we just spoke to her normally. And I said, well, why? She said, she used the word ubiquitous <laughs> and used it correctly. And I was like, oh. I'm not sure I can spell that. <laughs> right, right. I can spell it. I can but, spell it. But... but but I thought, okay, yeah, they are listening, and she yeah. does understand, mm-hmm. and so she's Did very. You say you're a lawyer. <laughs> um, I don't know if I mentioned that or not, but yeah. that would 
ring for everyone. No, maybe. Oh, he's a lawyer. Makes a lot of sense, right. right. (laughs) So let's uh, move forward in your childhood. So um, when did you decide that you wanted to be a lawyer? Um, Good question. Actually, I get get that question sometimes because it's not a common thing. Um, And it relates to back... uh, to a conversation I have with my kids. And I, and I feel kind of bad because I feel like I pressure them. I, I unintentionally pressure them into making a decision about their own careers. Um, I'd often tell the story that when I was 15 years old, around 15 years old, the, the school had a, a sort of a career day. So people came in and talked about what they did. So there's a fireman that showed up, policeman, a doctor, accountant, folks like that. And this one individual had come in and he's sort of talking about how um, he didn't say what he did. He just said, here's the things that I can do in my job. So I counsel people. I help them with problems. If there's something that needs to be in writing, they sold something, I help them, you know, uh, write it out so it's clear. So after a few minutes, and we all like, oh, you're an attorney. And he went on to explain how, as an attorney, his, his work is so diverse. There's not much of anything he can't do. And he was saying, you know, he explained, like, it's not all like Perry Mason in court. You know, you go Mm -hmm. and you can work for a government, you can work for a business, you can work for just about anyone who needs the help because everyone needs it, right? And I always remember the one thing he always said. He goes, but that doesn't mean you're always liked. (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) What do you mean? Everyone loves lawyers. Uh Right. And he said, well, we have a tendency to make the simple things complicated. But I, you know, I begin to realize in practice that's true, but you're only doing that to help uh, advise your client properly. Mm-hmm. Did you consider this to consider that? I just want to sell the thing, you know. Uh, well, that's yeah, true, but here's other things you need to consider. Mm-hmm. So um, I was so interested in what he had to say, I actually followed him out to the parking lot. And <laughs> I think at some point he was like, get this kid away from me. <laughs> um, but from that point on, I remember going to my parents and saying, this man came to school today. I really like what he had to say. And so they, they listened to what I had to say about how um, I wanted to start this journey, but had no clue how to do it. So I went back to school, went to see my counselor that was assigned to me, and told her, this is what I want to do. I was heartbroken in, in a sense that she told me, well, that's great, but um, maybe we shouldn't set our aspirations so high. You know, the local Votec has a good carpentry program, a good electrician program. So it was not something that was common. Like, I was still viewed as being inferior in mm-hmm. that regard. And so that, that was really disappointing to me. So I, I you know, I, I milled it over, internalized it. And I was one of those weird kids who actually had a friendship with the principal. You know, like I talked to him. And so <laughs> you practiced your big words on him. Yeah, um. yeah maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, I always considered myself a good kid. I never got in trouble. So, you know, things came up and I just would talk to him because he would, you know, one day he just stopped me in the hallway and just started talking to me. And so that's kind of how it developed. So I went and saw him and I said, you know, this is what happened. And he, he genuinely was concerned. Mm, so good. he said, come back and see me tomorrow. Okay. So I went out about my day. I uh, returned the next morning, saw him. He goes, I want you to go see this person. Gave me a little note um, in the name of another counselor. So I went in to see her. A little bit, I guess, 
uh, apprehensive because I didn't know well, sure. what the response was going to be. Mm-hmm. But it was a completely different response. I sat down and said, here's what I do. And I remember the first thing out of her mouth was, then we need a plan. Uh. I was like, okay, let's put this together. So from that point on, we discussed classes to take, and she explained to me, like, you can't be, you can't take weightlifting all four years. You can't, you know what I mean? You can't be sure. doing that stuff because that's not what schools are looking for. They want somebody who's serious about their education. So during the elective periods or the elective courses I could take, I was selecting courses that, that I thought would benefit my application to, to college. And that's how it started. Went back home. I was really happy with it. And I remember my mom's words saying, anything worth doing is worth writing down. So I created a checklist. I created a checklist with a box next to each one of them. And I re- occasionally went back to my counselor and said, here, okay, what about this? Okay, you need to consider this. You need to consider that. We added to the checklist. Continue to add to the checklist. So where, where it became a very broad outline, and those who are familiar with law school, you outline the course. <laughs> Had a broad outline, but we had subcategories. So each one of them had a box. And so through the years, I would create a list with boxes next to them. And as I completed a task, I checked it off. That continued on through college, through law school. And the final box to check was to pass the bar exam. Mm. So I still have that sheet of paper. That's amazing. It's tattered and old. Some of it may be hard to read, but still have it. That's amazing. I love that. So it was a a very a visual person in that way. Like I know, like I haven't done that, so I need to create a list. I need to create a list um, to stay on track. Mm, what a methodical way of making your dream come to realization. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it helped me track my progress as well and what I'm not doing and what I need to do. Um, I had this weird uh, quirky thing I did as well. Um, when I first, well, all that hard work got me into the University of Colorado. I got a full academic ride. Wow. So started school there. Bit of a culture shock. So the first year was very difficult for me. And I actually considered transferring to Arizona. And um, the there were two um, native workers who worked there that were very instrumental in keeping me there. Before you go on, can you tell us about what the culture shock was? Um, it, well, first of all, it was just pure size. I, I mean, I come from a very small community. Mm, mm-hmm. the, the University of Colorado in Boulder, just the campus alone was probably four or five times bigger than my entire town and population was. Sure. So it was so diverse. I didn't know where I belonged. So it was really a sense of belonging. I didn't know where I fit into all that because this, the university was so massive. Mm-hmm. And so I think that aspect of, of feeling isolated and alone, I mean, I knew there were other Native students there, but we didn't connect enough to see each other enough to, 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 to have a sense of community, I suppose. Okay. And so having gone through that, it didn't, didn't feel right for me. So I thought toward the end of my second semester, like, I don't belong here. I need, I need to go somewhere else where mm-hmm. I feel like um, more of a sense of community and belonging. Mm-hmm. Uh, but luckily... Uh, those two individuals I was talking about talked me out of it and said, let's just give it one more try. Mm-hmm. And, and the university did um, make a change in terms of how they uh, approached uh, minority students, particularly uh, Native American students, and created a, more of a bonding um, uh, in terms of – what they did was create um, 
scheduled meeting times or get-togethers, things like that, so that we had a sense of who we were. We recognized each other, and that, that really did help. We had our own student office, and from then on, you know, I, I felt a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember um, working really hard. Same thing, right? Do your best. <laughs> do your genuine best. Mm-hmm. And um, I lived in an apartment that overlooked the university. Not the best, but who has the best apartments in college. Mm-hmm. And looking at the university and, and saying aloud to myself, I belong here. Mm-hmm. I belong there. And reaffirming that. And that goes to the second rule because it was the, the contemplation of, of leaving somewhere. Second rule, don't ever, ever make a major decision in your life based on fear. Mm-hmm. And I realized that's what it was. I was afraid to face the, th- the thing, the very thing I needed to face. And so having done that and realizing like there's a fear of not belonging. There is a fear of that insecurity of not feeling like you're wanted, I guess is a better way of putting it. Um, but then realizing that is a fear that can be overcome, you know, uh, since then I, I've, I would say I'd have uh, a lifelong friendship not only with some of the staff there from the university, but also friends that, that I met at the university that, you know, um, I often tell people, I said, you know, do you realize outside of my family, you're the longest relationship I've had with one of my friends that I met when I was 19, 18, hmm. 19 years old. Very cool. Um, so, it, you know, it, it, so it, it lends back to that. And so... Um, I guess implementing those those rules or those things that I, I guess over time they weren't rules in my head they were just things that were floating around that my father and my mother had told me mm-hmm. and, and a lot from my grandmother who who didn't speak English that mm-hmm. it's another story as to why I think um, I chose the path I did. What was your law school experience like? Similar or different than college? Uh, it was different. Um, I, I was uh, when I finished law or uh, my studies at the University of Colorado I took a year off. I worked for the university for a little while, and then I took another job. And I wanted to uh, take a break. Mm-hmm. I just kind of felt like I don't want to jump into law school right away. Mm-hmm. And so I was contemplating the schools I got into. I wanted, for a moment, thought, thought I'd stay at the University of Colorado, but somebody had told me that it's not best to do your law school work um, at the same place you did your undergraduate work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got a phone call from someone at Arizona State. Um, and she had described their program. Here's what we can offer you. We do have federal Indian law. Here's some of the aspects of it. And it really did intrigue me. And then I guess the, the, the thing that sealed the deal was she said, if you accept um, our invitation, then we have a means to uh, provide you scholarship money, meaning that they would waive the in-state, out-of-state tuition portion of it and provide me money for in-state. So, um, and plus the tribe was helping fund uh, my law school as well. So I think from a more, you know, practical standpoint, I thought, okay, that sounds what I would like what I'd want to do. Plus they have the aspect of the federal Indian law, which really intrigued me. And so that's that, that having gone there, there were other native students that had been recruited from across the country. And so walking right in to the, the university or to the law school there, um, there was already a sense of community. Um, right from the get-go, we had to get together and we met everyone. And so we had a lot of support groups, um, a lot of support uh, resources that were available to us. 
And there, at the law school there at ASU, um, it's called the Indian Legal Program. So there's actually a specific program set aside for the studies for federal Indian law development and scholarship in the area. So that, that was, so my experience there was a lot different. Uh, not to say that it was any less rewarding at CU. I, I really hold both institutions in high regard. Did you like law school? Um, yes and no. <laughs> law school was um, one extreme or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think when you ask, like, what was your law school experience like? I remember talking to my father. I mean, having a phone call, like just the first month in, like lost, like I don't know <laughs> what is going on, like uh-huh. contracts. I was uh-huh. like, what the heck? Um, and we had this conversation about it, and I remember just not, like, am I, am I, am, am I up to the task is what I thought. Mm-hmm. Am I, you know, I did well at CU. I felt like, you know, I could excel at this. I could do this. Um, um, took the LSAT twice. Second time, I was like, okay, this is what I can really do now. I know, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but but being there was a whole different experience. So the level of um, anxiety and the insecurity I felt wasn't really based on who I was. It was just what I knew, mm-hmm. and I didn't feel like I knew enough. Mm-hmm. And so again, um, recognizing the problem, how do I correct it? Uh, and then so I started reaching out to other students. How do you understand this? How do you know this? And gradually it started to open up. And I remember they call it, um, I taught law school too at the University of Denver for oh, a few years. Oh, very nice. So we call it when the light comes on. And I remember <laughs> the day. My light came on real late. <laughs> yeah, my, I, well, I was probably the second, third month in. And all of a sudden I'm like, wait a second. He's talking about money consideration is just money right you exchange something for something else like why did they have to make it so complicated right speaking another language right you know so it's so i was like okay now i get it and i started understanding what we as as, uh, those who uh, have gone through law school understand as a black letter law Mm -hmm. so i started condensing it down into simple terms so in all the nuances of theory and all these cases that you have to consider I remember the first time somebody shared their outline of contracts with me. It was 200 pages. I'm Whoa. like, well, how can you outline this, right? Condense it down to 20. Yeah. Because it was really just the fine points that you needed to know. I started grasping the idea, how it's done. And from then on, the rest was just history. And I started studying what I wanted to study. Mm-hmm. Uh, ironically enough, at the University of Denver, I taught contracts. Oh, oh wow. And family law and federal Indian law. So... Um, I, I had one of those professors, I think, who watched the paper chase a lot. Mm-hmm. So he would kind of use use the Socratic method, but like the, the Socratic meta, method with extreme prejudice. So, so, <laughs> so many bad memories. Are I, know. About. <laughs> I hate to, yeah, I don't want to give you anxiety about it. But, but that was his approach. But once I realized what he was doing and how he was doing it, he didn't seem so scary. Hmm. And so I would go to office hours and talk to him. And so his persona in the classroom was much different in person. And he would he did take the time to explain what was going on. He goes, you aren't understanding it now. You are getting it. So he, let's build on that. And, hmm. and so I think in the teaching at the first year, um, I, I saw that as the example. 
tried to follow it, but that wasn't me. That's not me. And so the next year I changed it. Um, didn't want to do it so much. I, you know, and I told my students, my goal here is not to tell you how much I know and how much you don't know. That's not my job. My job is to prepare you for the practice of law. So let's take a different approach to this. By the time, what I want to see is, when I, by the time you reach the stage of experience that I have, I want you to do more and know more. That's my goal. So I think taking that approach was much more effective. Mm-hmm. And um, notice that the, the level of response was much better. I was going to say your classes must have been extremely yeah. popular. I should yeah, probably retake so. contracts with yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, it, you know, just having gone through that, it was great. And I always used to say, you know, I teach for free. They pay me to grade because grading exams is. Oh, I like that. Probably not the best thing in terms of fun things to do. I love to teach. It was it was one of the best experiences of my life. Grading the, the, the work, though, it was tedious. and But it, it is a reflection, I think, of yourself of how effective you were as an instructor. Mm. So you sit there and, like, they are understanding. They are getting this. This is great. I had one student that the reason why I changed the methodology of how I taught the class was he came to me. And he was on the verge of failing. Like, he was just not understanding and getting it. Highly intelligent kid came in and he was just distraught mm-hmm. and I still remember him um came in my office and he's he was just like I don't how could it have been so bad so we sat down I made a promise to him I said okay I I understand your frustration I understand your concern I will make a pact with you if you come to me and you seek help I promise you I will spend as much time as you need with you until it makes sense, until mm-hmm. you understand this thoroughly. And he took me up on it. There were times where I was in my office, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night. We're going through it. I'm not giving him the answer because, mm-hmm. you know, law school is there to teach you how to think right. and how to problem solve. And so I sat there and we went over and over and over. And I could see the light coming on. I could see the light coming on. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the next semester, he had earned one of the top five grades in the class. And that's out of 200 students. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. So, and it goes to, you know, it goes to the whole adage, you know, resiliency and do your genuine best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. We need to get into kind of the now and the next, but since, I can't help myself, since who you, Ben, contributes so much to who you are now. You mentioned your grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, how did your grandmother kind of contribute to who you are now? Um, as a child growing up, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother, sometimes alone. And she would um, never talk to me as a child. They always, they always said that I was like a, a little grandpa. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because she's like, oh, he's serious. I, I remember we'd be outside. Because she lived, she lived very traditional. She lived in a hogan, hoan, which is a traditional one-room home on the reservation. No running water. No electricity. Wow. She lived old school, the old way. And so oftentimes, sometimes we'd be outside, and she'd have a fire going. And we'd sit there, and she'd talk to me, and I'd stare in the fire. And she'd ask me, Navajo, what are you thinking? You know? And I didn't realize I was doing this, but she was watching me. And I'm like, oh, I don't know, nothing. 
And she goes, you must have been thinking about something. Mm -hmm. So those conversations led to more and more conversations. As a little kid, I, I would go with her and she had sheep and cattle. So we would go herd them and come back. And oftentimes it was just her and I. So she would have these discussions. And then when I got older, she would start asking me questions like, well, you read a lot. What do you think about this? And what do you think about that? We started talking about politics, the tribal president at the time, some of the decisions that were being made. Why are they doing this to us, meaning the federal government mm -hmm. to the tribe and tribal members? And I remember doing the best I could. And then I remember one time, this was right before the... Um, the day, the career day in high school. She said, she got this piece of paper, and she goes, She goes, what is this? What does this say on this paper? So I looked at it, and it looked very dense. I'm like, uh, I don't know, let me read it. So I read it, and it read like history, kind of. Um, so I did my best to translate it. I said, this is what's happening, this is what's happening. It has to do with the government and the court's doing this. I remember we read it and she concluded at the end. She goes, how can they do that? That doesn't make sense. I said, I don't know. That's, that's just how it reads. To me, it was like a book, right? Mm -hmm. The irony of it all was I'm sitting in my second year as a 2L law school. We're going through a case and I thought, God, I've read this somewhere. I, this sounds so familiar. Mm. And, I, and I was sitting there trying to recall like what it was and what it happened to be was, it was one of the cases in Johnson v. McIntosh. What she had was, and she didn't realize this, was an excerpt on Felix Cohen's handbook on federal Indian law. Mm. And I asked her, where did you get this? And she said, well, your grandpa, they were um, clearing out some stuff at the BIA school, the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs boarding school that was maybe 10 miles south of where they lived. And they were throwing this old metal desk out. And he got it. I said, Why, what does Grandpa want a desk for? She goes, oh, it would be a good butchering table. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and he was throwing out the papers. And she found some of them and thought, this looks important. I'll mm, keep it. Wow. And so uh, she had this footlocker she kept, and she always kept her, like, really personal things in there. And so what she had pulled out and what, what she had taken out and we had read was that and the best that we could do to understand, understand and decipher that. Years later, when I was in law school, I saw her um, and I explained to her what she had. Mm -hmm. And she goes, are you serious? I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's what it was. Wow. And so um, she passed, gosh, would have been early, well, it was like February 2000. Mm. And uh, about two, almost three years before I graduated, after I graduated. So when upon graduation, she couldn't attend my last school graduation. So I went to go see her. She still had it and gave it to me as a present. So very cool. I do have that as well. Wow. So in some weird way, I guess, and I don't, you know, if you believe in the signs or somehow people are destined to do things, sort of, I guess, uh, turn in that direction. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Without even knowing that that was happening, it was happening. That's really special. Yeah. So. So it sounds like you graduated from law school around 97-ish. Yeah. That's right. Okay. That's very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you started practicing. You said you started as a family law attorney, right? Yeah. So what I did was when I first graduated from law school, um, since, the, since the tribe paid a good portion of my education, um, 
I worked for what they call DNA, I'm sorry, DNA, People's Legal Services. And so it's a legal service the tribe had for those individuals who could not afford an attorney. Mm. Uh, we didn't provide uh, criminal counsel for criminal defendants to simply just, it's too voluminous and the money's not there. But for those individuals who may have a uh, family law case, custody matter, probate matter, um, you know, uh, some individuals who, like my father and my mother, were not born in a hospital. So there's no documentation to show there's a birth certificate. Mm. So we have to go through another process to get an affidavit of live birth is what it's called. Mm. So a process to do that to help these individuals who may not know it to, to do that. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I first started got thrown in the deep end. I mean, I remember <laughs> right away my caseload was like 40 clients. Wow. And just had, mm -hmm. to, just had to figure it out. But it was wow. good. It was a good practice. I mean, it, it got my feet wet. I understood. Um, one of the major rules was don't get emotionally involved mm. with your clients, oh, which is so difficult easy. to do. Uh -huh. Difficult to do. Um, but I, I heard one time someone say, it's probably in a movie or something because I always think of movies and the quotes. <laughs> but they said that you have to keep your head while all about they're, they're losing theirs. Mm. So what that meant to me was, and I explained to a client, this is after I, op I started opening up the firm early on. I had a client sitting in, my, okay. in front of me at my desk. And she said, well, I want to do this and I want to do that, right? And I'm like, Okay. And she's like, well, doesn't that make you angry? And I remember looking at her saying, well, ma'am, I can't be angry. Um, I have to be objective. I cannot get emotionally in your, involved in your case. Because if I, once I do, I cannot effectively represent you. Mm -hmm. I have to see all angles and advise you of everything that exists. Once I start getting emotionally involved is when I stop being effective as your counselor. So please understand that. So when I started teaching family law at DU, that was my very first presentation. Mm. Rule number one. A good one. Don't yeah. get emotionally involved. I mean, it's hard to do because you're human and you want yeah, to. Yeah, absolutely. And you can feel for these people, but at the same time, you're their counselor. Right. So you have to be keeping your head while all about they're losing theirs. Mm. What's your favorite part about your current role? My current role? Um, that's a very good question. I, I mean, it's one of those things uh, that I, I, I really love what I do. You ask my kids and they're like, he's crazy. He that, right? um, is that I, I have the ability and the autonomy to do the work that I want. Um, one of the things about practicing law for me is that I, I love what I do. I'm fortunate enough that I can make a living at it. But the overall goal has always been somehow to assist those who need the assistance and those necessarily who may not afford it. We always, in the firm, we always say quality over quantity. So nothing leaves the firm that we absolutely are sure is not the best that we could do. So when I, when I consider that, I, I look at the clients that do need help and those, there's some things, I guess it goes back to you select the fight that need fighting. So those opportunities do come up. And I, and, and I guess what I love about doing is that I have the autonomy to do that, to take those on. Mm. 
And sometimes there's a far and few between. I mean, you do have to maintain a business and a practice. People do need help, um, and you you do assist them. Um, but out there somewhere, um, and occasionally it's happened, there are those ones where you take, and you know, it's very, in, in that way, it's personal. Like, I have very good satisfaction for that. And I'll give you an example. I had a client come to me, gosh, this is probably about 12 years ago, said we have a problem. And I had to deal with a land issue. It was in Utah. And the problem was this dispute had been gone going. In my research, I realized this has been going on for 53 years. And it needs to be resolved. Um, spent a great deal of time uh, doing the investigation, doing the legwork, finding out the information. And we litigated, went to a one-week trial. And I represented a client that had a large family. And so at the end of the, the litigation, uh, we prevailed. And they were so happy. Just, just, the, just the sense, uh, my, my client, the main client, was an old Navajo grandma woman who was definitely in the latter part of her life, um, was so um, thankful. And you know, she only spoke Navajo, so, but she had told me, like, thank you for your help. This has been going on for so long. We, don't know, we didn't know it was even possible to get it resolved, but it has been. Thank you. So, you know, having getting involved in those types of cases it is satisfying because you know you helped. And you had the ability and the skill to utilize uh, on behalf of your client to get a, a good result. Mm -hmm. so. It's a powerful thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. We're just about out of time. Okay. So we'll ask the final question, which is, what's next for you? Uh, what to do when I grow up? Yeah, who are you going to be? Who am I going to be? <laughs> um, that's another very good question. Um, we saved the hard ones for last. <laughs> uh you know, practice of law is one of those unique careers and professions where you could do it for a very, very long time. And I've thought about it, and it's not that I don't like the practice, but I don't think I will do it for a long, long time. It's something, and I'll know, you'll just know when you know. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. um, but in that, I think, is a next step. So I talked about the list mm -hmm. and creating the list. And I think all my experiences now is now the foundation for a new list. Hmm. So as I work on this new list, we'll be getting to develop. So part of the question is a famous popular lawyer answer. It depends. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, it, it will be dependent on how these next few years pan out. Um, I, work, I am currently working on, um, it's a personal project for my children. And it's really based upon the, the sudden passing of my mom mm. about 13 years ago. And my father, he's alone. And I realized that um, I don't know as much about him as I thought. Mm -hmm. So as we have discussions and when I visit to him, something new always comes up. And I was like, I didn't know that, Dad. I didn't know that, Dad. And I thought, thinking about my own children. Like, do they really know who I am? And when it's the time comes, who I was. So my project is, is that I create these little short stories of things that have happened that they don't remember because they were maybe too young to know yeah. or before their time. But in doing that, I think would help them understand who I was. And in, in that way, 
help them understand who they are. So it's a compilation of things. So that's one of the projects that, that I work on. Very cool. Um, and in, in that, and the other things that I do would be um, continue to maybe make myself available for community efforts. Mm-hmm. I realize, and that's probably one of the the things I, I'm critical about, about my, myself about is that I'm not as involved in the community as I'd like to be. Um, there are things that I think where I could be beneficial and useful. Mm-hmm. What that is, I'm not sure. And again, it'll depend. Yeah. So I think as time goes on um, and as the practice winds up, whenever that'll be, will offer me an opportunity to do that. And of course, to paint and fish and go to the CU Buff games. All the things you enjoy. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Keith, thank you so much for your time today. We've really appreciated the opportunity to get to talk to you. And uh, we look forward to seeing what the next list holds. (laughs) I appreciate your time. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you. Good luck with your podcast for your kids. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much. I really appreciate you giving me the time. Thank you. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McGarvey. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices. Thank you.